Back in August of 2004, I attended my first leadership uh, summit, and one of the speakers was Wayne Cadero. And he was talking about the fact that when you are involved in leadership, you actually drain your tank. There are things that will pull you down, and you need something to fill your tank again. And I discovered that what did that for me was watching my daughter's after-school sports. 3.30, 4 o'clock, people stop calling the church, and people don't want to get together for a visit then. They want to get home and get their meal ready. So I would take off from when my oldest daughter started junior high until my youngest daughter finished high school. So it, w it was 14 years altogether that I was a super fan. So I, I brought out one of my items here. I'm just going to blow it for you. I'll turn off my mic. It's flying a bit. But I would cheer, I would say, go Dunbrack, go West, whatever it was. I had other noisemakers with me, always trying to encourage the team and spur them on. And then after my youngest daughter did graduate, I said, girls, I've been doing this for 14 years. How am I going to fill my tank? Can I just go up and watch other girls' sports? No, Dad, that would be creepy if you do that. So I've been finding other things to fill that. But we all have something that is a passion, it's something that our heart is just drawn toward. And today, in this part of our series on being shaped to serve, I'm going to talk about our heart. And when you look at the definition of heart, you see the organ that pumps your blood is one thing the dictionary says, or your emotional constitution or disposition. But then they also say it is the vital force or driving impulse. And when the Bible uses the term heart, it represents the center of your motivation, your desires, and your inclinations. Psalm 37, 4 says, Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you your heart's desires. So my heart determines why I say the things I do, so my family now understands why I say some of the things that I do. Matthew 12 for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And then my heart also determines why I feel the way I do. And it determines why I act the way that I do. Proverbs said, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. So my heart is the real me. Physiologically, each of us has a unique heartbeat. Each of us has a different pattern that our heart beats to. But in the same way, God has given each of us an emotional heartbeat. And that races when we encounter activities or subjects or circumstances that interest us. And we just instinctively feel deeply about some things and not so deeply about others. And this God-given motivation serves as an internal guidance system for our lives. And it determines what your interests are and what will bring you most satisfaction, what will bring you fulfillment in your life. And it also motivates you towards certain subjects or activities or environments. So that's why you chose the program you did when you went to university. So why has God given us a unique heartbeat? God had a purpose in giving you these inborn interests. 
In fact, your emotional heartbeat actually reveals a very important key to understanding God's intention for your life. Because God has placed this in you to want you to serve. And that alone is a powerful insight into where we should serve. And the Bible makes it very clear that your heart was designed by God, but you make the choice to use it for good or evil, for selfish purposes or for service. So we serve God by serving others. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul wrote, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So similarly, passion has been placed in us to guide us as to where we should serve. But it too can be rooted in the flesh. So it must be a passion rooted in God. And passion is a strong motivator to do something. It makes us feel great when we do that thing. It makes us feel empowered. But the greatest and deepest passion actually comes from God. And it works the opposite way. When those passions aren't fulfilled, we feel crushed or we feel empty and we suffer greatly until they are completely fulfilled. That's why the word passion in its truest form, we get it from the Latin actually, patior, which means to suffer. So that's what passion means. It means to suffer. If we don't do something, we suffer because we are so drawn toward it. That's why the journey of Jesus to the cross to be crucified is referred to as the passion of the Christ. Mel Gibson used that very phrase for the title of the movie that he made about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So he had to make that journey. And there was no place in his heart to consider anything else. In Luke 9 as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So he kept avoiding Jerusalem all throughout his ministry. He kept avoiding going to the cross because he knew that that time was not yet right. But when it was, he went and fulfilled his passion. So the ultimate contribution God has for you will actually align with the passions that he has given for you and for his kingdom. Our heart reflects our dreams and desires. So let God help you unlock your heart so that it can start beating for him because God has given you specific passions in order to glorify him. In the historical account of Joseph, we see how he kept his desire to honor God above all else, and he was following God's lead despite terrible circumstances that happened in his life. There was betrayal, there was imprisonment, there was false accusation. He was disregarded on a number of occasions, and he ended up serving and saving the people as well as serving a foreign nation. And all of this in spite of any earthly desire to change his circumstances. So I've done some work and I've put together a narrative and summarizing the life of Joseph. And as I share his story, be listening for all those times when he gave in to his God-given passion. Those times when he could have easily just gone the way of the world. 
Now, the account starts off, and it sounds like a soap opera, because you have Jacob, his father, who meets Rachel, falls in love with her, and uh, approaches Laban, asking for her hand in marriage. And Laban said, sure, but you've got to work for seven years on my farm before you have the opportunity to marry her. So he agreed to that. And I was thinking, what if when these young men had approached me wanting my blessing to marry my three daughters, what if I had said, well, you need to work for me for seven years? Well, actually, James, (laughs) our associate pastor, is my son-in-law, and he's been here for over 12 years. But uh, yeah, but so uh, it didn't really do that. But the seven years passed for, uh, uh, for Jacob, and the time came for the wedding, but his father-in-law substituted his oldest daughter, Leah, for Rachel. And the reason was because in their culture, the oldest daughter had to be married first. So Joe, uh, poor Jacob doesn't even get an apology here. He is just told, if you want to marry Rachel, you have to work seven more years. So he does that. And then there's a whole mess of boys being born to four different women. And Joseph and his brother Benjamin were the only two born to uh, Rachel, the favorite wife of Jacob, and they were the two youngest. And when Joseph was only 17 years of age, he would go out into the fields with his older half-brothers, and he would uh, do shepherding of the flocks with them. But then one day, he came back and he reported to his father about all the wrong things that his brother were doing, and that kind of made them jealous. And then his father always looked upon Jacob as his favorite. Excuse me, Jacob always looked upon Joseph as his favorite. And one day he had this amazing multicolored coat made just for Joseph. And that made the brothers even more jealous and angry. And then Joseph had a dream. And the dream was, he said, to his brothers that we were out in a field and we were sheaves of grain and my sheaf rose up and then you all bowed down with your faces to the ground to me. And they said, what are you telling us? Are you thinking that you're going to reign over us one day? But Joseph had another dream and he should have kept the dream to himself, but he didn't. And he said, in this dream, I was the son and I saw... 11 stars bowing down to me. And even his father scolded him about that dream. But he still, he kept that dream in the back of his mind. So one day, the 10 older brothers were out in the field, shepherding the flocks. And dad sent Joseph out to check on them. And the brothers saw him from a long way off. And I wonder if this is like southern Alberta. I went with my wife, Pat, to visit her cousin down on his farm. And we came over a little hill, and I saw his farm. And then I clocked 12 kilometers before we actually got to the farm. But it's not like that around here. So maybe it was a bit like that. The brothers saw him coming, and then they start coming up with a scheme of what they're going to do with him. We've got to get rid of him. We're going to kill him. But by the time he got there, they had decided, okay, led by Reuben, the oldest, he said, let's just throw him 
in one of these pits that we see around here. And then Reuben's plan was, I'll come back at night and let him out so he can go back to our father. And then they ripped that special coat up and they tore it off him and threw him into an empty cistern. But Reuben wasn't with the group that next day and there was this band of Ishmaelite traders. They were heading towards Egypt. And Judah said, well, we can't kill our brother. He's our own flesh and blood. Let's sell him as a slave to these traders. And that's what they did. They sold him for eight pieces of silver. And then they took that robe, which was now all torn up. They put goat's blood on it and took it to their father saying, look what we found. And they didn't even have to say the lie. Their father just assumed that Joseph had been eaten by wild animals. And then poor Jacob, he was inconsolable in his grief. And when the Ishmaelites arrived in Egypt, they sold Joseph to Potiphar. <clears throat> he was one of Pharaoh's officers and captain of the guard. But God was with Joseph, and he became successful as a slave within Potiphar's house. And then God was with Joseph, and Potiphar couldn't help but notice that everything that Joseph did, God caused to prosper. So Joseph became the favorite of the household. And then he rose in ranks to become Potiphar's personal attendant. And eventually Potiphar put him in charge of the entire household and everything he owned, except for his wife. And Potiphar didn't have to concern himself with anything because Joseph was in charge and the only thing he was to avoid was Potiphar's wife. But Joseph was well built and handsome. My family aren't at this service so I can tell you this story. In 2019, our, uh, we had a team go to Poland to, with uh, Graceland Ministries for a short-term mission trip and we would meet one-on-one -on -one with some of the people that were in the school and do some English training with them. And this one day, the story was on Joseph. And there were some definitions that we had to help our friend understand. And Piotr was assigned to me, and we came to well-built, and he goes, you. And then my daughter, Shannon, was in the same room listening. And then we come to handsome. You again. So his English wasn't very good, but he was trying to make me feel a little better. But Joseph was well-built and handsome, and Potiphar's wife started watching him, and she tried to seduce him. But he refused over and over again. He said, my master has trusted me with everything. Why would I do something that is so clearly wrong and sin against God? But she pursued him day after day until one day he went into the house and all the other servants weren't there. And she approached him again and this time she grabbed him by the outer clothing and he just ran away as fast and as far as he could leaving her there holding on to his cloak. And when she realized that he had rejected him, 
she had been rejected by him again, and she had his clothes in her hand. She called to the other servants, and she screamed, this Hebrew that my husband brought into the home, he tried to take advantage of me. And when I screamed as loudly as I could, he ran off and left his clothes here beside me. So she kept Joseph's clothes with her until her husband came home and then told him the story. And he immediately became angry and had Joseph thrown into a prison. And this was a prison where all the king's prisoners were actually posted. But God was still with Joseph and he developed favor with the chief jailer. And the jailer put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners. Whatever needed to be done, Joseph was the one to do it. The chief jailer didn't have to worry about anything that was in Joseph's care. Because whatever Joseph did, God worked to make sure that that worked well. But sometime later, Pharaoh's cupbearer and his baker did something to annoy him. And they were thrown into the same prison that Joseph was housed in. And one night, both of these men had dreams. And when Joseph went to check on them in the morning, uh, they were both troubled. We've had these dreams, and there's no one here in the prison to interpret them. The, the Egyptians believed that there was always a special revelation in the dream, and you had to be specially trained in order to interpret them. But Joseph said, God can interpret your dreams, so tell me. So the cupbearer told him his dream, and Joseph said, the interpretation is, in about three days' time, you will be restored to your position in Pharaoh's house. And then the baker, he got all excited hearing that interpretation. Here's my story. Here's my dream. And then Joseph sadly told him that the interpretation was that in about three days' time, you will die a terrible death. And three days later, it was Pharaoh's birthday, and on his birthday, he summoned his cupbearer to come back into his house, and he then had his baker killed. And Joseph had asked the cupbearer, remember me when you get back into Pharaoh's house so that I might receive some favor, because I've done nothing to deserve being in this place. But when the cupbearer got back into Pharaoh's house, he forgot about Joseph altogether. So two years later, Pharaoh had a dream. And he woke up and he was troubled by it. And I'm sure he had a drink of water, went to the bathroom or something, went back to sleep, and then he had a second dream. And the dream was that seven healthy fat cows came up out of the Nile River and they were grazing along the edge of it. And then seven really gaunt, horrible looking cows ate them. And then the other dream was seven really plump heads of grain that were growing on the same stalk. And then seven others grew and they were scrawny and thin and they ate the seven plump ones. And Potiphar couldn't understand what his dreams meant. He brought in all of his wise men and they couldn't interpret it either. But then the cupbearer had an aha moment and he said, wait now, back when I was down in jail, there was this Hebrew named Joseph. He was actually a servant of the captain of the guard and he was there. And when 
I had my dream and the baker had his dream. He interpreted those dreams exactly as they turned out. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph and his servants went. The scriptures say that he was allowed to shave and change his clothes. I'm sure that there was a bath in there as well. And then he was brought before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had some dreams and no one's been able to tell me what they mean. But I hear that you can interpret dreams. And then Joseph said, "Uh, well, I can't interpret them, but God can. He can do this. So Pharaoh proceeded to tell him the dreams And Joseph said, these dreams are one and the same. The seven good cows and the seven good ears tell that there will be seven years of great abundance and the seven thin, ugly cows and thin ears of grain represent seven years of famine that will follow. And whatever abundance will have been built up in the seven good years will be consumed in those other seven And then this is going to happen very soon. And he said, my advice to Pharaoh is to hire someone who is wise and discerning and put him in charge of the land of Egypt during this time and make sure that he stores up 20% more grain each year so that the people won't starve during the famine. So Pharaoh appoints Joseph to be second in command in all Egypt and he is to oversee the fulfillment of that suggestion. And Pharaoh wants to be certain that there's no doubt that Joseph's in this role. So he had a formal ceremony. He presents Joseph with his signet ring. He mounts it with Pharaoh's personal seal. He dresses him in royal garb. He gives him a BMW chariot to ride around in. And then to top it all off and make sure that the people know he's in charge, He gives him an Egyptian name and arranges a marriage into a prominent Egyptian family. So just a few hours prior to this, he was a prisoner in this horrible jail. And now he's in charge of all Egypt. And he's 30 years of age at this time. So 12, 13 years have passed since he left Canaan. Now during those seven years of plenty, Joseph stored up as much grain as they possibly could. They had no idea how much grain they actually had. And then the seven years of famine struck. And Joseph was selling wheat to the people of Egypt. And then the people in other countries started to hear how Egypt still had some food. So they were coming down to Egypt in order to buy food. Well, Jacob realized that his family was going to perish because of this famine. So he talked to his sons and he sent Joseph's 10 oldest brothers to Egypt to buy grain. And, and he held back Benjamin, the youngest, because he'd already lost Joseph and there was no way he was going to take the chance on losing Benjamin as well. And so the brothers went to Egypt They stood in the lineup to get in to see none other than Joseph. And when they went into the room where Joseph was, they got down, they bowed their heads to the floor, just as Joseph had dreamed. Now Joseph recognized them, but they didn't recognize him. So he he basically played with them a little bit and was very harsh with them but he decided that he would give them some wheat 
to take back to their families. And he actually accused them of being spies. And this is what they said. They said, my Lord, we are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. The youngest, however, is with our father back home, and one brother is no longer with us. But he charges them with being spies, and he puts them in prison for three days. And then he changed his mind, and he said, okay, one of you will stay in prison, the rest of you will take the food back to your families, and then you all must return with your youngest brother so that this one doesn't get executed. And the brothers were talking to one another in their own language, not realizing that Joseph could understand because he had been speaking through an interpreter. And they said, now at last, we are paying the penalty for what we did to our brother. We saw his anguish when he pleaded with us. We wouldn't listen. And now we will pay for spilling his blood. So their words moved Joseph and he had to withdraw because he became emotional. And after composing himself, he came back into the room. He chose Simeon as the one to stay behind and then sent them off with food for the journey and wheat. And then he instructed that their money be put back in the top of the bags that they had the feed in. And they, the guys discovered along the journey that the money was there and they figured we're going to be in trouble again. They get back home, they tell their dad what this guy wants and he doesn't want anything to do with that. There's no way he's going to allow his youngest, Benjamin, to go down. He already lost Joseph, possibly has lost Simeon. But the famine rages, and finally he relents, and he said, okay, take your youngest, but take some extra money with you. Take some of the special things that we have here in Canaan as a a, a gift to this Joseph. And then they're back in Egypt, and they're invited to a feast at Joseph's house, and they strangely notice that they've been seated in order of their birth, from oldest to youngest. And during that meal, Joseph finally meets up with Benjamin, and once again, he has to withdraw himself from the room because he becomes emotional. And then he sends them off, he plays with them a little bit, and they're brought back again, and some accusations are made of stealing from him. But then Judah, the second oldest, finally stands up and he asks to meet privately with Joseph. And he said, you know, our father, he, he, he just can't bear to lose this son. He has already lost his second youngest son. Let me stay here in his place. So there was a big change in Judah. He's no longer that selfish young man who has no concern whatsoever for the feelings of his father. All he was thinking at that time was, I can't stand this brother. I've got to get rid of him. So Joseph asks everybody to leave the room. He gets his servants to empty the room except for his brothers. And he finally reveals himself to them. And it's an emotional time. And then they are still kind of nervous because they know what they've done to Joseph and they know the power that the man now has. But this is what he said to them. Don't be upset or angry with yourselves any longer because of what you did. 
You see, God sent me here ahead of you to preserve life, for famine struck this land two years ago, and there are five more years in which there will be no more plowing or harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to make sure you and your family survive this terrible ordeal and have a remnant left here on earth. So it wasn't really you who sent me here, but God, the same God who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, master of his household, and ruler over everyone in the land of Egypt. And even Pharaoh is elated with the news that Joseph's family is there. And he says, tell them to bring their whole families down here. Bring their animals, bring all their belongings, and I will set them up in the most choice land of Egypt. So 70 of Jacob's descendants moved to Egypt, and the chosen nation has been preserved. And in 400 years, that nation would grow to be over 1 million. But over and over again in that story, we see that Joseph's desire to honor God with his passions rose to the top. He met all the needs that were presented before him. So you have to ask yourself, what needs have God and others met in my life? The second Corinthians says, he comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. So God can use our weaknesses and our failures and he as well as our struggles and our strengths and our passions as part of an amazing masterpiece that he is creating with our life. So your suffering can help others through their own suffering and discover their full potential. So we have been giving some homework each week of this series and part of the homework that we'll be passing out to you at the door today to help you discover and further develop your shape for serving is by answering this question what needs do you love meeting maybe it's spiritual needs maybe you love helping people discover Christ and reach their full potential in Christ maybe it's physical needs like do you use your resources to help people with their physical needs helping them through practical expressions of love maybe it's with food it could be with clothing it could be with shelter and other simple necessities maybe it's relational needs because you enjoy helping people find authentic christ-centered relationships with others connecting people and helping them build satisfying relationships or maybe it's emotional needs. But do you find gratification helping people go through pain in their life situations by counseling them or encouraging them or listening to them? Or maybe it's educational needs. You like to use the teaching gift that God has blessed you with in order to bring special joy into other people's lives, in order to enable them to live their life to the fullest. Or finally, it could be vocational needs. Do you enjoy training and coaching and consulting others to help them overcome barriers in their lives, to reach goals and maximize their potential? What eternal difference do you long to make for God? If you take the time to listen, God will direct you to the cause that he has personally chosen for you. 
But it takes time to fine-tune our hearing. It takes time for us to be able to really sense God's presence in our lives and his discipline. But it's a deliberate choice that we have to make. So three final questions. Are there some activities that you need to eliminate in order to allow God to speak to you? Are you spending so much time on social media that there's no way that he can get anything through to you at all? Where can you adapt your schedule to make more time for listening to God? And then finally, how can you learn to recognize God's voice when you hear it? And how can this help you to follow through and find your unique heartbeat for God?